0: Hello and welcome to Mending the Gap, your guide to women's mental health research. My name is Catherine Saunders and I will be your host. I'm a third year PhD student at the section of Women's Mental Health at King's College London. In each episode I'll be sitting down with the researchers themselves who are working to mend the gender gap in mental health research. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Roxane Kanajad, a clinical research training fellow from the section of women's mental health at King's College London, about her article titled Gender Equality in the Global Health Workplace: Learning from a Somaliland UK Paired Institutional Partnership. This was published in the BMJ Global Mental Health in 2018. Please be aware that sensitive topics such as female genital mutilation and intimate partner violence are mentioned in this episode. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for joining us today. It'd be really good if you could tell me a little bit about your clinical and academic background, and maybe the journey that's taken you to this point. That's that's got you interested in global mental health.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, so I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a I'm trained as a doctor. I work in the UK National Health Service and throughout my medical training I've taken up opportunities in clinical academia. So when your very first job you're a foundation doctor there's something called the academic foundation program and after that in what's called core training there's clinical academic fellowships. I've pursued those different opportunities and I was so interested in research that I Um, have taken three years out of my clinical training as a psychiatrist to do a PhD in global mental health. What led me into the field in the first place? Well, I actually studied graduate entry medicine at King's College London. And that was inspired by volunteering I had done during my undergraduate degree in Kenya with a charity called Tentilani, which trained university students in HIV education skills and my kind of frontline experience of global health in Kenya at a time when the HIV epidemic was extremely rife just got me very interested in health and led me in the end to become a doctor. And you took this three years
0: out to do research, how has that been going from clinical work to
1: research? It's a really different kind of job to be a clinician versus an academic. The pace of clinical work is much faster which has pros and cons. It means you're very busy and sometimes academia is lovely to take the time to really think through problems and look for the evidence and the answers. But on the flip side, clinical work is really rewarding because you see a person with a need and you can usually do something about it. So in a sense, they combine really well together and I'm hoping long term to try and pursue both in my career.
0: That sounds really exciting. So the study that we're going to talk about today was actually about Gender inequality in the workplace in Somaliland, which is a low and middle income country. So, just for listeners and me as well, how would we define a low and middle income country?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because it changes in a sense every year. It's simply a World Bank determined classification. The World Bank makes that decision based on the gross national income per capita in a country. So the gross national income of the country divided by the number of um, the population. And at least in the most recent classification, they said a low income country was one in which the gross national income per person was 995 US dollars or less. A lower middle income country is one in which the people earn each in a year 996 to 3895 US dollars upper middle is from that amount to 12,055 US dollars per year and a high income country which is of course what the UK is is any country where the gross national income is 12,000 dollars or more so that's a lot of numbers but just to give an impression that Somaliland is very much a low-income country that in a year the average person is only earning less than a thousand dollars just puts things in perspective about just how under-resourced services and how limited people's livelihoods can be.
0: Wow yeah I think that was a really really important thing to to talk about right at the beginning because it gives a really good background for where this study kind of sits. So aside from the um, gross national income could you just give a description of Somaliland and what it's like there?
1: Yeah, so Somaliland is a region, it's often confusing because it sounds like Somalia, it's clearly part of that region, but it's not a country many people are familiar with, unless maybe you've heard of it through Mo Farah, whose family is from there. But Somaliland is a region that is part of the landmass of what the United Nations recognises as Somalia, but it is a former British protectorate, and it's been self-declared as an independent state for many years, but continues to be internationally unrecognized, which has lots of problems for it um, being a- eligible for international aid. Mm. Um, but, but unlike Somalia, which experiences high rates of terrorist attacks and great deal of continuing conflict, since the civil war in which Somaliland separated from Somalia rest of the country uh, it's been quite peaceful in Somaliland and that has enabled the work that the paper reports. The population is about four and a half million and it's in this part if you're not um, very familiar with Africa it's in this region called the Horn of Africa so close to the sub-Saharan African region and a lot of it is desert.
0: So much of this article well, all of it actually, is based on something called the King's Somaliland Partnership, which is an institutional partnership. And I wondered if you could just explain what this partnership and perhaps others like it entail.
1: Yeah, so it's called a paired institutional partnership. And as you say, there are many like it especially in the UK, but I think around the world. Essentially, it's when usually, but not always, a high-income country's university or health service or both pairs itself and matches with a health service and or university in a low or low-middle-income country for what is recognised to be mutual benefits, but hopefully reciprocal educational sharing. So, my PhD is at King's College London, and my psychiatry practice is at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, and they're all both part of something called King's Health Partners. And King's Health Partners is quite a big um, umbrella organisation covering more than three NHS Foundation Trusts and the University of King's College London. So it's got a huge number of personnel, huge amount of resources, and lots of expertise, as well as a lot of people who are interested in volunteering um, for the benefit of colleagues in countries with fewer resources. So partnerships like this, like the King Somaliland partnership has been in existence since 2000. And its aims are to improve healthcare and its outcomes by strengthening particularly people, organisations and systems in Somaliland. So the goal really is to in a sustainable way because that's really important we don't want to replace what is needed in Somaliland but we want to in a sustainable way contribute to improvements in the education there the healthcare that's provided and the quality improvement structures that exist so for the past five years I've been mental health group co-lead of the King Somaliland partnership and that has involved the fact that there, there are very few psychiatrists in Smileyland, so trying to ensure that the curriculum still teaches medical students about mental health. Because just because there are a few psychiatrists doesn't mean people aren't experiencing mental health problems. So contributing to undergraduate education, but also crucially building capacity locally so that when we are no longer involved, the medical students continue to uh, be trained in psychiatry.
0: So it's really an opportunity for shared learning and sharing resources and building up places where otherwise maybe they wouldn't get those opportunities and that that sort of support.
1: Yeah, and it, it really benefits from the burgeoning development of technology and um sometimes it gets called telemedicine, but also e-learning. We've got a fantastic website that's gone from strengths strength to strength called Medicine Africa, which is specially designed for places where the internet bandwidth is low. So you could do all your teaching on WhatsApp or Skype or something, but that does require a certain quality of internet. And in Somaliland, the bandwidth is quite low. So we use a website called Medicine Africa to do online tutorials. When we're not there face-to-face, which is a quite restricted portion of our work, we can do lots of remote teaching. And that contributes to the sustainability because people volunteer with King Somaliland Partnership for many years. And that, again, contributes to something that builds relationships, which, in fact, I would say, without those relationships, this paper would never have been published.
0: I think that's so interesting to talk about the access to internet, where you know we're in a country where there are very few places you could go to where you wouldn't have you know 3G on your phone or access to Wi-Fi. So I think that's a really important thing to highlight. And, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Going to the article it starts with a really striking statement that the Me Too movement has been slow to reach the field of global health. And I, I wondered if you could just explain that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's not an immediately apparent connection, the Hollywood revelations about uh, sexual harassment and global health. They're not immediately obviously connected. But I think Me Too is one example of how I think... Most of us have noticed that gender equality is getting a lot more recognition in the public eye than it used to. That's multifactorial, but I think it's certainly something that gathers momentum that as probably Me Too wouldn't be happening if there weren't more of a climate of openness, transparency and support to believe people who have kept disclosures of harassment um, private for many years So I think many of us are aware that there's a bit of a shift in the discourse that people are talking more about gender equality. There's certainly more institutional recognition. So there's been this big um, issue in the UK about the gender pay gap um, and in other high income countries also. And there's something that was quite striking called the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report. So that ranks all the countries in the world that have data on various domains according to how much disparity there is between men and women's experience. So actually, even outside of Hollywood and high-income countries, there is increasing recognition of gender equality. For example, in something called the Sustainable Development Goals, which is the United Nations plan for the next 15 years about what countries should be measuring themselves against, they've taken the step of making goal number five all focused around gender equality. You might even remember that the Nobel Prize in 2018 went to, to it was shared between doctor who worked addressing sexual violence in Democratic Republic of Congo, and a activist in Syria who championed all of the rights of the Yazidi women who had been sexually abused. So, there is this global discourse around gender equality. And it's important because there's lots of evidence that gender inequality is bad for health, physical health and mental health in lots of different ways. that We probably don't have time to go into on this podcast, but um, it is relevant to health. But it's one thing to have lots of news headlines, but it's another to have appreciable improvements and change and more than just lip service to this issue. So I, I think that's how our, f- our first statement in the paper came about.
0: I think that's such an important point to raise about gender inequality and physical and mental health.
1: So let's go to the study. What was the aim of this study? Well, it's co-authored by me and only one other author from King Somaliland Partnership from the UK. Every other author is a colleague from Somaliland. Um, More than half are women but it's important that two are men as well, because gender equality affects us all. And it came about because we were recognising this growing interest in global gender equality. Interestingly, some academic journals have thrown more of a spotlight on it. So there's something called hashtag Lancet Women. They've done a special issue all about how gender inequality affects health. And that was one of the things that we picked up on. And I started a conversation with my colleagues in Somaliland about whether they thought this was relevant to them, whether it would be interesting, and what their perspectives were. And I think there was an expectation that this would be a sensitive subject. You know, it's a Muslim country in which, when we looked at the data, the proportions of women enrolling in university are certainly lower than those of men. I've got the stats in the paper. So there was an expectation that it might be sensitive, it might be an unpalatable thing to raise, maybe too controversial. But I was really um, pleasantly surprised that certainly all my co-authors thought this was interesting and important. And indeed, one of our co-authors is someone very famous in Somaliland, Edna Adan Ishmael, who is the founder of a hospital. She's got Desert Island Discs from um, recent that I would really recommend. But she championed the study. She, she leads a women's health hospital and, um, she advocated for it. And in fact, the Ministry of Health and Development supported us to do it. So we got ethical approval to do the study. But in fact, the ministry was interested. They wanted to hear the results. And the aim was to understand within the partnership what the experiences were of Somaliland partners. Of any profession, of any role, could be doctors, nurses, teachers, a range, and also to understand whether there were commonalities or not between their experience of gender inequality and that of the UK members of the partnership.
0: So it was comparing the experiences of the people working in the partnership in Somaliland and the people in the UK.
1: Yeah, and it was a mixed methods study. So we weren't trying to do a, a really um, quantitative design, um, you know, where you might ma- try to match doctor for doctor Smileyland and UK. We didn't think there would be any meaningful way to compare. And also, you know, we didn't have any resources for this study. It was, it was completely cost neutral, in fact. We just wanted to, yes, compare their responses to see whether we could learn instructively from the partnership in that way. So keeping it mixed methods really
0: made the results that you got as sort of open as they could be. And it was in that way, almost kind of explorative.
1: Yeah, there's no literature on this, certainly none from Somaliland, but there's actually when you look, not huge literature on gender inequality in the global health workplace full stop, especially in low middle income countries. So it was exploratory and we felt that mixed methods was a good choice because there is this validated measure, the Workplace Prejudice and Discrimination Inventory, which is actually designed for more for racial inequality, but which we adapted for gender inequality. And we thought it would be good to try and use a validated measure. Okay, the, the version we use was not validated for Somaliland, but something that had been done before to try to quantify differences between the UK and Somaliland participants, but then also get lots of free text answers so that we could have lots of rich data about the reasons why people were selecting those responses. And what did the results show? Um, well, if I start with the WPDI, so Workplace Prejudice and Discrimination Inventory, um, when we looked at just the Somaliland women and men, they unsurprisingly differed significantly in their experiences of workplace prejudice and discrimination from the point of view of gender that was statistically significant difference whereas actually when we compared UK participants men and women there wasn't a difference particularly there were some statements that Somaliland women endorsed more strongly than men which were things like women workers in Somaliland said at work women receive fewer opportunities where I work men are treated better than women at work, people are intolerant of women. Managers check women's work more closely than men's. Making jokes about gender is common where I work. And at work, I'm treated poorly because of my gender. And then we had a couple of items that we added based on the co-authors in Somaliland's personal experience of what they thought people might say. And some others that were statistically significant where women endorsed them more than men was I'm not encouraged by my seniors to aim high in my career. And I miss out on training or teaching opportunities because of my gender. So these are all items that have previously been used to um, research racial inequality. So it is quite striking that those same appalling inequalities that perhaps we are more familiar with in terms of race are happening for women as opposed to men in the Somaliland context. So that's probably the the highlights of the quantitative results.
0: It's interesting because they're the quantitative results, but they're actually really descriptive in what they tell you because of the statements used. And those statements are really striking, I find, when I hear you read them.
1: Yeah, and I think you have to also remember that the women who are having this experience have already overcome a lot of barriers to become a doctor or become a nurse, So to then be in the workplace, just trying to do your job, which is, you know, highly stressful and with very limited resources. So the same health problems that we face here in the UK, but just with very little that you can do because of the resource context of the health system. Then also having to grapple with some of the things they're saying, like I'm blocked from going to teaching or I get less opportunities to scrub in in theatre. You know, these are all insidious barriers that do contribute to women dropping out of the workforce and I think that's also really crucial
0: yeah I mean it's not encouraging and it's not a, a situation that
1: really fosters growth yeah absolutely it really it limits and I think this is i'll come on to what the uk um findings were in a moment but any such phenomenon that limits the diversity of the workforce is a problem because the workforce needs to represent the diversity of patients that it serves. And if all the workforce are, in our case, perhaps white men, then the service will probably not meet all of the needs of the diverse population of patients that we see. And in fact, in the UK, more women than men are now training to be doctors. But you can imagine in Somaliland, there would be additional barriers for women. And of course, Early years of your professional training often coincide in Somaliland and also in the UK with times of having of getting married, having a child. And those are other reasons that might contribute to women's decision making around dropping out of the workforce. So it has it has really big
0: implications, doesn't it, about how women continue in the workplace and how many women are being lost. So let's talk about the results for the women in the UK.
1: So actually, I should have said earlier that the sample size was 36 Somaliland participants, of whom 58% were women, and 17 UK participants, of whom 53% were women. So we certainly had an overrepresentation representation from Somaliland, which is a good thing, and a slight over-representation of women, but generally quite balanced. So that's good. Most of the UK participants were doctors, 65%, but... In Somaliland, 42% were doctors. And then there was a range of other professions represented, including administrators and teachers and midwives and nurses. So the qualitative results were actually really interesting. And what we did was thematic analysis between me and my colleagues from Somaliland. that was a great experience for me. And I hope for them. Um, some of them had never done qualitative research before, so it was certainly a learning experience. But we found that the simple framework for thematic analysis was really possible to follow. And it was very clear that the things I picked up from reading responses were not I- identical to the th- the themes that emerged from the data for them. And so having that diverse team participating in the analysis was a real asset for this study. All the details are in the paper, but a flavour of the kinds of things that people said in the qualitative kind of free text questions, which were about their own experiences and what could be improved. So in Somaliland, women said um, that men are just disproportionately encouraged to progress and women are just widespread believed to be weaker, less competent and reliable they spoke about, you know, barriers to him, scholarships and promotion and leadership, comments about not being able to progress because she there's a chance she might marry or have a child. And also interesting things about personal safety. So kind of women being posted to inaccessible regions of the country, which in Smiley Loud, of course, is really inaccessible, where, you know, they wouldn't be safe to go outside unaccompanied. So if you're the doctor in that region, that's going to be very... Um, inhibiting to your ability to do your job. They said things about being interrupted in meetings by men, feeling in, humiliated at work and under-encouraged. So all of that kind of qualitative results was um, really enhanced our understanding of those quantitative metrics. But then what's really important is the UK participants, although of course we don't have the same severity as you can tell from the WPDI schools I mentioned in the UK there wasn't a significant difference between men and women nevertheless the qualitative responses did highlight um, continuing pervasive and subtler prejudice that women face although interestingly a few points about disparity for men also so things like being bullied during on-call shifts in the UK the fact that leadership in UK healthcare is still quite um, underrepresented in women male colleagues asking women to do all the pelvic examinations on women to sort of free up their own time and f- and sort of saying, you're a woman, you can do that. One who spoke about her experience in the US said, you know, and, and this interacts with the United States quite draconian maternity leave policy, where women get very little time off, but said that women are thought of being selfish if they want to breastfeed during working hours. But on the flip side there was recognition in the UK that there are some advantages to being female. For example, some feminine, att- stereotypically feminine attributes sometimes help you to pass examinations. That's something we know about the UK medical exam system that women often pass more often. Um, and actually, um, a man said, um, I often feel I'm treated with more academic respect than my women peers in the workplace. So also men were recognising the disadvantage. But equally, they said, I'm expected to stomach more abuse than my female colleagues. So it's actually very interesting that, you know, certainly we're not perfect in the UK. And on the World Economic Forum rankings, we're not in the top 10 at all. But it was interesting to flesh out the quantitative results with some really detailed and diverse experiences that actually there was quite a bit shared between the UK and Somaliland in some respects.
0: It sounds like the qualitative work really sort of paints more of a picture behind those quantitative statements that people were endorsing or not endorsing. And I think it's really interesting to hear the male perspective on on this issue and the disadvantages that are faced by both men and women.
1: Yeah, and something we tried to capture which I think we we probably didn't get a huge amount of data on this, but we did ask about other barriers because I think it's quite simplistic to think about men versus women, and it's probably not a helpful comparison to draw, really. Because the theory of intersectionality that your gender intersects with many other aspects about yourself be that disability or sexuality, many things, ethnicity that you know, it, it's too simplistic to say women experience this and men experience that because, of course, a a white, able-bodied woman might have quite a different experience from an ethnic minority disabled man, for example. Um, And we did ask about other barriers, um, but it did feel like in this study that the gender barriers came most to the fore.
0: And what implications
1: might these results have for mental health? It's a really good question, especially given that all my partnerships with the colleagues in Somaliland came about from the mental health group of King Somaliland Partnership. It wasn't the focus of this particular study to ask about mental health impacts, although I think you can tell from the flavor of what we're saying that it's highly distressing to go to work and have experiences like this. No one actually specifically raised experiences of burnout or mental health problems arising from such experiences. But in a sense, there was some implicit allusion to that Mm. there's a lot of really good evidence from so i mentioned the workplace discrimination prejudice and discrimination inventory there's a lot of good evidence more from the racism research literature that experiences of prejudice and discrimination are very detrimental to mental health there's of course nothing pleasant about feeling an outsider or an other or being bullied or harassed that's sort of obvious but there seems to be genuine causal relationships between those experiences and mental ill health again really interesting literature that's probably outside the scope of the podcast but i would say the relevance of these things these findings would to mental health would be both to the kind of mild symptoms that might not meet a threshold for clinical diagnosis but might lead to burnout and workplace stress and time off work But also, if there is a pervasive culture of prejudice and discrimination against any particular group, that that's likely to impede the mental health of that group. And I don't think we have data on that from Somaliland at all.
0: So that's something that really needs to be thought about in the next steps for this research. And where does it go next? Absolutely. I mean, every study has limitations and we've talked about how this is kind of a trailblazing study in that it's the first of its kind and it's touching upon sensitive topics that perhaps in places that aren't high income countries are not seen as appropriate or um, things to be encouraged to talk about. But what limitations does this study have and what could maybe be done in the future?
1: Well, As I said, there was no um, budget for the study, so it was quite a pragmatic and opportunistic sampling exercise, which meant that we used an online survey designing tool to gather responses. That meant that the recipients spoke English, could write in English, had internet access to do the survey, had the time, and heard about the survey so we were clearly going to gather so in fact i'm quite impressed that we did recruit 36 Lamp participants because they are extremely busy but clearly that that would skew the um types of responses we would get and my hypothesis is that probably were we able to mirror our methods with a paper exercise or an interview method or um conduct Certainly, if we could conduct interviews in the Smiley language with, say, nurses, or what are many mental health and other health workers in Smiley Land who have limited professional training and are not doctors or nurses um, in their own language in a confidential setting, I think we would probably detect much more severe prejudice and discrimination than what we've picked up here. Um, So that's really the main limitation that we've got limited diversity. Um, according to the sampling method that we used. So we'd you know, have loved to triangulate the data with other sources. And that would be the main thing, that it would be a great area for someone to explore in more detail, more depth, and then build on to look into ways that um, these problems can be ameliorated.
0: Well, any budding global mental health researchers out there, there's a great idea for some some new research. We've touched upon how this is a sensitive area, especially in um, places that aren't high-income countries and sometimes even in high-income countries. How do we continue to encourage exploration into these sensitive issues,
1: such as gender, in lower middle-income countries? I think it's a really good question because it's tempting, as I said right at the beginning, to dismiss things that feel difficult to talk about as perhaps culturally insensitive to broach i mean my own phd in ethiopia is about intimate partner violence and that's something that people have huge taboos that hold them back from asking about but actually you do find that when you ask sensitively politely in a secure and safe and trusting clinical dynamic people experiencing intimate partner violence are actually very happy to talk about it and I think that's, this is quite a good example of how things may seem sensitive but people are experiencing them and even when, for example, the male participants may not always experience the same, they still observe it and they don't always think it's right um, at all but may struggle to know how to respond. So I think some of the answer just lies in openness, transparency, increasing the discourse. I also think we can learn a lot from the um global move to admonish female genital mutilation which for many years was dismissed as a cultural practice that was really nobody's business to judge or um, condemn but actually there's there's really from the world health organization and other international bodies recognition that some basic rights cannot be violated just by allusion to culture and so just a greater global conversation about what are the minimum expectations of people's human rights and things like the sustainable development goals such as goal five for gender equality are all ways that countries that probably wouldn't prioritize this issue can be encouraged to put it on their agenda.
0: Thank you so much. This has been so interesting and If there was someone listening who was really kind of inspired and wanted to learn more about these sorts of things, is there something that you would encourage them to read or listen to or have a look at to learn a bit more?
1: Well, I'm loath to recommend looking at a 100 plus page document. But if you are keen, um, this World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Report, I'm not recommending you read it as such, but there are pages for a over 140 countries in the world. And I think it's a good idea to look at where your own country is on the list and what your country is doing well, according to the World Economic Forum and what it isn't. As I said, the UK is not in the top 10. In fact, in the year that we published this paper, um, in the top 10 were Rwanda, Nicaragua and Philippines, all of which are not high income countries just showing that actually affluence is not always a barometer for gender equality. Rwanda, for example, is a really good example of a country where post-conflict, there was a a hideous um, civil war and genocide in Rwanda in the 90s, but post-conflict, they have got gender representation in their parliament and and many other things that, while not perfect, are things we in the UK can only dream about at the moment. Um, So I probably would start with just praising where you live and then the countries that you visit and have partnerships with and if you have contacts with people outside the UK or or wherever you're from opening up a conversation about these experiences I think is a really good start there are also a huge range of interesting media I love podcasts and um, certainly one that has come out of Kings is Um, Julia Gillard's Gender and Leadership Forum podcast that is just starting but I think is a a good international standard for thinking about how we could expect minimum standards of equality all around the world.
0: And perhaps also you
1: mentioned right at the beginning
0: one of your co-authors did a Desert Island Discs
1: Edna, yes yes listen to Edna Adan Ishmael's Desert Island Discs which was on just to hear an inspiring story of someone who grew up in Somaliland and followed their values to make a difference to the health system yeah I can't recommend that highly enough yeah I think that
0: would be great so that's the recommended listening from this episode Uh, Roxanne thank you so much for sitting down and having this conversation with me
1: my pleasure thank you for having me
0: So, there we have it. A fascinating study on gender equality in Somaliland and the UK. Thank you again to Roxanne for joining me and giving such an insight into her own and the team's research. Please do rate and review, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at mendthegappod, and join the conversation using hashtag mendingthegap. We'll be back with our final episode of this season very soon. Thank you for listening.